invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you were here last week, you said, well, wait a minute, we were in 15 last week. Well, guess what? We're going to be there next week, too. This is a long chapter dealing with an important topic. And you say, well, how do you know it's important? Because the first few verses of chapter 15, Paul says, of first importance. So I think this is the most important message there is. After Pentecost, the first two sermons that the disciples preached dealt with the resurrection. So I want to talk to you about the resurrection of Jesus and really about your resurrection today. Now, unfortunately, you can't talk about resurrection without talking about death. Now, that sounds like an upbeat topic, right? But you know what? I think we misunderstand death. It's something we think about a lot at funerals. But as soon as the funeral's over, we try not to think about it anymore. And I think people misunderstand death. If you've ever stood at a funeral, it seems like it's so final, doesn't it? And yet... From Scripture, we know that it's not. What's the promise that we have as a believer? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Folks, that's good news. And in God's timing, as a child of God, that's where I'm going to be. If you happen to be alive at my funeral, listen, I'm not there. If you come and look at me in the the casket, let me tell you something. That was just my earth suit. And I'm going to shed that one day which will be a good thing. And God has promised me a brand new body. And so if you have loved ones that have gone to be with the Lord, folks, today is good news. Now, one of the reasons I know that people don't understand death is I I listen to people at funerals and I watch what people post on Facebook. They don't get Facebook in heaven. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but I see a lot of people posting messages to dead people on Facebook. And I think it probably is helpful sometimes to write things down, and we're kind of speak that. Just to understand, they're not reading that. And I know people say, yeah, but what about Hebrews chapter 12 where it talks about, in fact, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. Folks, listen, they're not watching us. We're watching them. That's the whole point of Hebrews chapter 11 is this great cloud of witnesses that we're watching their example. And so we run the race. So it's okay to put... R.I.P. on a sign and have somebody's name there, just understand who you're writing that to. You're writing that to other people that are grieving, and, and that's okay. The Bible also says, listen, as believers, we don't grieve like the rest of the world does. Why? Because the rest of the world has no hope. But in Christ, we have hope. So listen, I'm not encouraging you to rush that day, all right? God will let you know when he's through with you. Don't prematurely leave, all right? Don't check out before he's ready for you to check in. But listen, death's not a bad thing. In fact, I misunderstood for most of my life. Psalms 23, when it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I've heard that preached at funerals, and I always thought they were talking about the dead person. Listen, once you die, you're not walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Who is? The people that are grieving. And that's where we find comfort in the fact that God's with us. So when I talk about resurrection, you've got to understand something. It takes death. And in this case, it took the death of Jesus Christ. Paul's writing to a group of people in Corinth who had been lied to. There are people in Corinth who said, you know, this whole idea of Jesus dying, we're not going to buy that. Because they couldn't buy the fact that he was fully God and fully man. 
And even today, there's groups that teach that it only appeared that he died, and therefore it only appeared that he rose from the dead. Baloney. Let's look what Paul says. The first few verses of chapter, excuse me, of, of chapter 15, beginning in verse 20. He says, but now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Paul starts with this really one word, but really that phrase, but now. And you've got to look at what is what is he talking about. I love some of those verses of Scripture that describe something, and it says, but God. Or in this case, but now. What's the transition? From verse 19, he's, he's talking about the fact, listen, if you don't have hope in the resurrection, then you are most to be pitied on the face of the earth. That's a pitiful place to be, that you have no hope of the resurrection. So Paul says, but we're not like that. doesn't apply to us. But Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, he's the first fruits. That's a term that we don't understand in our generation, but in the Hebrew, in the Israelite generation, they were used to bringing an offering of the first fruits, first fruits, whatever the crop was. Let's say it was wheat. They would pick the first of the wheat crop. They would bring it before the, the Lord and make it as an offering. They would turn it over to the priests, and it was an offering before God. Now, it was also a promise that there's more to come. It's also important to know that that first fruit was part of the whole crop. So when it says that Jesus is the first fruits, here's what it's talking about. Jesus, who rose from the dead, is that first offering to say that there's more coming. Who's he talking about? Us. Now, Old Testament has examples of Men or women that had died and rose from the dead. It has examples in the New Testament. The most popular is Lazarus. Lazarus rose from the dead, right? But what happened to Lazarus? He died again. Lazarus had two funerals. Now, Jesus kind of messed the first one up. Because <laughs> after four days, he told him to come forth. So Lazarus came forth back to life, but Lazarus ultimately died again. Jesus is the first fruit in the sense that He's the one that rose from the dead never to die again. And so, men and women, we have hope because of that. It's the hope that because Jesus rose from the dead, he's the proof that the harvest is coming. And so Paul's writing to a group of Christians in the first century. He writes another of his letters to say to people, listen, if one of your friends, one of your loved ones, perhaps a parent or a spouse, has gone on into death, understand something. There's a harvest coming. They're not staying in the grave. In fact, right now, they're not there. They're with God. And so he says, he's the first fruits of those who came, of those who will come. Since by man, he's talking about Adam, since by man death came, also by man, Jesus, life has come. In Adam, we inherit death. But in Jesus, we inherit eternal life. And here's the good news. Eternal life happens 
begins the moment you come to faith in Christ. It's not just talking about a resurrection from the dead, but life, the way God intended it, begins when you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're alive for the first time, really. And then we have the promise that though we may die in this earth, we will be raised with resurrection power one day. In fact, he even talks about the order of that. Paul understood. In fact, Jesus said, listen, nobody knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. But all this is going to happen in order. He said, each according to his order. Christ, the first fruit, then those who belong to him when he returns. And then the end comes. The first is the person of the resurrection. We're talking about Jesus, but really it also applies to you. So who are the people of the resurrection beyond Christ? Believers. We're people of the resurrection. Listen, I think sometimes we, we only focus on the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Listen, every day we ought to celebrate the fact that we serve a risen Savior. We celebrate the resurrection every day. So then let's look at the results then of this. This is powerful, folks. What you're about to see in these verses demonstrates what has happened because of what Christ did on the cross. Too often all we focus on is the fact that, yes, he died, he was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Last week we talked about the fact he appeared to multiple groups of people, over 500 on one occasion. But that began a restoration of God's purpose that's fleshed out in the next few verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has exempted or he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. I'll explain that. I know that sounds confusing. Verse 29, otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Paul says, listen, there, there was a purpose in the crucifixion. There was a purpose in the resurrection. And the purpose was ultimately to restore the created order as God originally intended. Then the end come. That is the point that all this has been aiming toward. The end did not come at the cross. The end is still future. But it's coming when he will hand over the kingdom to the Father. He has abolished. I love that. It literally means to make entirely idle. And here's the things he's abolished. He's abolished all rule, literally, any other power on earth, any other kingdom, any other realm. He's, he has abolished all authority, and he's abolished all power. Listen, when Christ died on the cross, it began the process of, of all these other things that were powerful on earth, including Satan himself, it, it began the process of making those entirely idle. In fact, the good news is it says that he will put all of his enemies under his feet. Christ will reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. Two things would happen in the old, in the old ancient world if, 
A king would always be elevated up on a platform so that any subject that came and bowed to him would be seen as being beneath his authority. They would subject themselves. They would be under his feet. The other thing that would happen is anytime an enemy was conquered, the enemy would be brought before the king, and the king would put his foot on his neck. And, folks, that idea still exists in the Middle East today. You and I don't exactly see it that way. But i got a couple of pictures for you. Some of you are going to remember these. When Iran fell, Iraq, excuse me, when Iraq fell, Saddam Hussein, that was a statue. The people could not wait to rip that statue off of its pedestal. And you know what they did? They dragged it through the streets, stepping on it. In fact, the next picture shows you two men. There's one, see, he's taking his shoe off. The other one's already got it in his hand. Symbolically for them, this meant you're done. <laughs> you're under our feet. You don't control us anymore. That's what Jesus did at the cross. That's what Jesus is doing now. He is abolishing all rule, all power, all authority, and he is now putting every enemy under his feet. And the specific one that Paul mentions is death. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus killed death. Death is that big thing looming on the horizon for us that scares us to death. But there's coming a day when he will finally put death death there'll be no more death we will spend eternity if you're a child of god you spend eternity with him in heaven that's why the song says hey when we've been there ten thousand years we'll have no less days Do you know what that means it means after ten thousand years the clock hadn't even been ticking it's not like there's an end approaching because there is no end folks that's good news jesus has put all these things under his feet then there's a couple of confusing verses that talk about the fact that, now, we're, we're not talking about the one who's put all things under subjection. He's talking about God the Father will not be put under subjection, but everything else will be. Jesus will hand the kingdom over to the Father. Ultimately, that last word is, so that God would be all in all. A phrase that was just a powerful statement, meaning complete sovereignty. Listen, since creation... The world has kind of gone haywire. And for those of you in the room that are over 30 or 40 years old, you look at the world today and you think it can't be much longer until Jesus comes back. Well, folks, no matter how bad things get, remember this. It gets better. Jesus comes back. All of those things that were wrong get put right again. He puts everything in subjection under his feet. And God the Father, reigns supreme, complete authority and control. And then perhaps the most confusing verse in all of Scripture is verse 29. Paul says, Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? I've studied this before. I've studied it all week. If you read commentaries, there's over 30 explanations of what this verse means. So let me teach you a, a theological principle. Verses like that to jump off the page and go, what does that mean? That just doesn't sound, doesn't, I don't get it. You have to translate Scripture with context. And when the Bible clearly teaches something, I can tell you this, Paul is not advocating being baptized for dead people. Now, there's some groups that do that and think it's necessary and important to do that. But Paul clearly uses the word they. And here's what he's saying. Listen, even the, if it's the case of even the pagans that are doing this, are acknowledging by doing that that there's resurrection from the dead. Otherwise, 
they wouldn't be doing the resurrection from the dead. Now, some scholars think that, no, he may be talking to believers who died before they were able to be baptized, and somebody took their place to be baptized. But listen, we don't really see that happening in the first century. We don't see Paul advocating that. Nowhere else. I think all Paul is commenting on, there's a tradition, there's something happening in and around Corinth. That Paul is saying, listen, those numbskulls that say there isn't resurrection, why are they being baptized for dead if they don't think there's a resurrection? And then last, not only the results of the resurrection, but look at the practice of the resurrection. This is just practical, okay? Paul just gets practical in these last four verses or five verses. He says this, why are, why are we also in danger every hour? That's what he says. I affirm, brethren, by the boasting in which you have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Let's just end with a real practical word. First of all, Paul says, listen, I die daily. Paul's talking about this resurrection from the dead, but Paul got it. Paul, in other places, said, you know, the life I now live, I live according to his power that works within me. I die daily. Folks, on a practical level, if you're going to live the Christian life, that's the way you do it. I've struggled, especially as a teenager, coming to faith in Christ at a fairly early age. But as a teenager, even into my 20s in seminary, struggling with, you know, why is it that, like, you can go to a retreat and come off the retreat, you're ready to charge hell with a water pistol, man. It's like, go God. You know, I just see the power of God. Have you ever left a retreat and you thought, I'll never sin again? And then two weeks later, I remember sitting in the driveway of a friend of mine's house, and I was like, Tim, I am so sick and tired of coming off retreats where I've made all these promises to God, made commitments, rededications, and all that. And then two weeks later, I need another retreat. Here's what Kim said. Here's what Tim said. Let's pray hard. So we squinted our eyes. Oh, you know, and I guess somehow we thought that's going to impress God. We're praying hard. No. That didn't impress God. Why? Because all we were doing is saying, God, here's what I'm going to do. And folks, as long as you're trying to do your best, hear me, it's not good enough. If you hadn't gotten sick and tired of being sick and tired, then the most loving thing I can say to you is this, try harder. But remember this, when you finally realize, you finally get to the end of your trying harder and realize, my best isn't good enough. How do we know it's not good enough? Listen, if it was good enough, then Jesus didn't have to come and die on the cross. If I could have just done better, then Jesus didn't have to die. He could have just sent me a self-help manual. Go to Lowe's or Home Depot or something, you know, and kind of get just do it yourself. Well, it doesn't work that way. Why? Because I was utterly incapable of living apart from him. And so when Paul says, I die daily, Paul meant, listen, it's fresh for me. That apart from Christ, you know what Paul did apart from Christ? He persecuted Christians for crying out loud. Apart from Jesus interrupting him, he would have still been doing that. His name would have been Saul because he changed his name. For me, on my best days, 
I cannot live for God apart from him. I've tried. You ever tried? Paul says, I die daily. So perhaps the most practical thing I can say to you is, surrender to Christ every day. That means every morning. You start your morning by saying, okay, God, here we go. This is your day. If you leave the day up to me, we're in trouble. And some of you are kind of like, man, I'm not a morning person. You need to become a morning person, all right? I'm not a morning person either. I've always thought, I kind of wish we had snooze buttons for morning people. You know, people are just a little too perky in the morning. Isn't there a button you can push? They come back four minutes later. All right, so I don't know what it is for you that wakes you up. Maybe it's your shower. I encourage some of you to take a shower in the morning. We got middle schoolers here this week. Maybe it's that first cup of coffee. Maybe it's Diet Mountain Dew. I don't know what it is. But have something in your morning that reminds you, okay, God, me and you. And God, I surrender fresh today to you. Paul said it this way, I die daily. Paul said, listen, if from human, if from human motives I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, and scholars wonder, was he, did he really? I mean, they were throwing Christians to wild beasts. So Paul either did that and escaped to tell about it, or he's just using it metaphorically, I don't know. But basically what Paul's saying, anything I do in my strength apart from Christ, it's not profiting me at all. He said, in fact, if the dead aren't raised, let me just put it this way. Listen, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then eat up. Drink up. Because you're going to die, and it's all over. But folks, the dead do raise from the dead. Those in Christ raised to life everlasting with the Father. Those apart from Christ spend eternity separated from God, the Father. Paul says, do not be deceived. Literally, don't get led astray by these people that are telling you things that aren't true. In fact, he says, you know what? Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company literally means worthless or depraved or injurious companionship. This is the people your parents warned you about. And specifically, Paul's saying, listen, if you are constantly hanging around people that are Whispering in your ear, there's no resurrection from the dead. You can go to church if you want to, but there's no resurrection from the dead. You can do all that stuff you're doing, but there's no resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying, quit hanging out with those people. Because bad company corrupts you. Literally, the word is erode or makes you shrivel up. And so Paul's writing to believers. Some of them had been Christians for a short period of time. Man, they had just blossomed into life. And then you had come around people trying to take the petals off the flower. And they were shriveling. And Paul said, listen, quit hanging around those people. Bad company corrupts good character or good morals. In fact, Psalms puts it this way. David, the psalmist. Psalms 1, 1. There's kind of a progression there in Psalms 1. But he said, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You see the progression? If you're walking around bad people, you know what eventually you're going to do? You're going to get kind of comfortable there and just start standing with them. Then after a while, you're not just standing anymore. You've taken a seat. So Paul says, listen, quit hanging out with bad company. 
And then three quick things. Just, just if you want to jot these down, just three thoughts of how we then do it. First, he said, become sober-minded. If you've been drinking the Kool-Aid, quit drinking the Kool-Aid. Become sober-minded. And literally, wake up to the truth. Listen, the more you know God, the more time you spend in God's Word, the more you're going to recognize when something ain't from Him. Second thing is, stop sinning. Well, that sounds easy, doesn't it? Just stop. There used to be advertisement here. Just say no. Apart from Christ, you cannot stop sinning. But in Christ, He begins to give you the power to do that. Now, does that mean that I've stopped sinning? No, but sin ought to become less and less a part of my life. And the good news is this. 1 John 2, 1 says, John says, I've written these things that you won't sin, but if you do sin, understand something. You have an advocate with the Father. Did you know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, constantly making advocacy for you, praying for you? And one of the things he's praying is that you wouldn't sin. Help him, God. Help us, God. Stop sinning. And then last, tell people the truth. Paul says, I say this to your shame, but some people have no knowledge. Some people literally are ignorant. And they don't know the truth. So how am I going to live my life? I'm going to sober up. It means I'm going to wake up to the truth. Number two, I'm going to stop sinning. I'm going to quit hanging out with people that help me sin. Because bad company is what's causing a lot of that. And by the way, make sure you're not the bad company. And then third, people that are ignorant of the truth, tell them the truth. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the hope that we have of resurrection. Thank you for the fact that death is not final. God, we've all stood at funerals weeping and sad because we're going to miss that person. And that's true. But if that person was a child of God, they are in your presence. They're not in pain. They're not hurting. And one day that's going to happen to each of us. And so God, give us comfort in that truth. That because Jesus has been raised from the dead, We're comforted to know that one day we will be too. Thank you for that truth in Christ's name.